Friday nights we have a number of Russian brothers and sisters who come to the congregation. Many of them have relatives in the Ukraine. So I would ask that uh, you would keep them in prayer, their mothers, uncles, brothers, sisters, etc. They're suffering under a tremendous attack, and it's, it's getting, it's just been going on now forever, it seems. And, uh, Kiev is in ruins, buildings. Sort of puts your mind to Berlin after the war. Please keep them, their relatives, in prayer and the people of the Ukraine in prayer. Uh, they're under vicious assault. The last six or so messages have been on God as righteous, God of mercy, and the last couple have been on God as a righteous judge. <clears throat> last week I presented God's righteous judgments appear as vengeance against the wicked and vindication for the innocent. And there are times when vengeance and vindication is revealed in Olam Hazeh, this world, but awaits the world to come, Olam Haba, for a perfect fulfillment when true justice shall be shown. And therefore, those who view God through the natural eye only, we often don't understand God's ways and we abandon him for our own understanding, something he specifically tells us not to do. Do not rely on your own understanding. You don't know everything that's going on. For me and many others, that is the primary focus of the devil's attack. Does this make any sense to you? Would you follow any human being who behaved in such a fashion, who spoke in such a way, who acted as, as God acts? Of course, the answer is no, because I don't really trust people. Back when God called me as a pastor, do you my words to him were you really want a shepherd that hates sheep <laughs> that didn't make much sense to me either our understanding in this world is often clouded because it is filled with did I forget my yarmulke but praise God I remembered my pants And if you have only one thing to forget, best to forget the yarmulke rather than the pants. Those are things you can write down and live by. I'm not only not of this world, half the time I'm not even in it. But our understanding in this world is clouded. We're under a delusion, as the second chapter of Thessalonians suggests. And it's not the devil that's deluding us. It's God. God has sent strong delusion. And unless you're a lover of the truth, you will believe those things that are imaginary, that aren't real. I often don't understand God's ways, but faith is revealed when understanding fails. The believer has faith in that which he cannot see nor understand and stands on the premise that God is holy, righteous, and good, and I believe that his judgments display those qualities of his being. 
even when I don't understand them. Unfortunately, man tries to improve on God's instructions. We all have at times. The world fundamentally changed after the death of Yeshua and his resurrection. It changed religiously and politically. With the conversion of Constantine, the Roman Empire was now the Holy Roman Empire. The law of God was no longer seen as coming from Zion in Jerusalem. The church now believed that God had migrated to Rome. Constantine commanded that the new church have nothing to do with the, quote, detestable Jews, unquote. And consequently, the word of God was divided. Knife blade went right through it. They determined that the God of Israel was vengeful and judgmental, while the God of the new covenant was a God of love and mercy. The law of God, as was given to Moshe at Sinai, was therefore replaced by the law of Mashiach, which was interpreted by the church. The dichotomy persists to this day in many different denominations. The one chosen by conclave or by election to lead the church was given the authority of Peter to interpret and to mandate the word of God. Matthew 18, 18, whatever, whatsoever you allow on earth will be allowed in heaven, and what you bind or forbid will be bound or forbidden in heaven. And as Christ's vicar is representative, the representative of the person of Yeshua on earth, he was infallible. Jewish believers saw this as an abandonment of this abandonment of God's law as a departure from the faith they received from Yeshua. They remembered his words in Matthew 5 that until heaven and earth pass away, not a single letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is fulfilled. All had not been fulfilled. Yeshua had not come back. He's not reigning from Jerusalem, and therefore the law is still in place. That's how the Jewish believers in Jerusalem saw it. Church saw it differently and wrong. Jewish believers in Jerusalem therefore saw the church in Rome as lawless, and the one that headed it up, they referred to as the man of lawlessness, the one that Paul spoke about. Obviously, the term here, lawless, refers to God's law. There's certainly enough of man's law that ruled the church and the empire under Constantine. The Jewish believers refer to themselves as haderech, the way, while the church chose the moniker Catholic, which means universal. These were more than just labels they revealed the schisms in the body of Messiah, which increased dramatically after Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the doors of Wittenberg's Castle Church. These schisms continued to deepen, become more severe, and eventually they became salvific, points that determined a person's salvation. Catholics judged the Jews and the Protestants and excluded them from the kingdom of heaven. Protestants judged the Jews and the, the Catholics and excluded them from the kingdom of heaven. And the Jews, they judged the Protestants and the Catholics and excluded them from the heaven. Nobody's getting in. I'm quite certain God is neither impressed nor is he influenced by the, our determination of who is saved, who ain't saved, who is getting into heaven, and who is not getting into heaven. 
Those judgments belong to Yeshua. There is one name under the heavens by which a man might be saved. And that name is not Bert. Jew or Gentile, man has sought to improve on God's law. And today, after a discussion about God, I want to reveal the dangers and the un unintended consequences that have followed our decisions to improve on God. I will begin with this caveat. Most people make their judgments on Jewish people based on their exposure to a single generation of Jewish people. We are seen through the lens of the first century leadership of Israel. A group of people who led Israel that we ourselves, as Jews, have determined to be thoroughly corrupt and defiled. The Jewish people have nothing good to say about the leadership of the Jewish people in the first century. They were utterly defiled. In fact, there were entire orders of Jewish people who would go nowhere near the temple. The Essene community was the largest and most famous, the ones who wrote the so-called Dead Sea Scrolls. They had nothing to do. They determined that the temple was defiled because the priests were defiled. To suggest that the generation, that generation is representative of the ideals of God for Israel is tantamount to suggest that our current administration faithfully represents the ideals of the founding fathers of the United States of America, which is a preposterous notion by any standard of judgment. A more inclusive view of Jewish law reveals something quite different. The Jews who followed the so-called God of vengeance sought to be merciful to those who were accused of wrongdoing. God determined that there were sins so egregious that they demanded the nefesh, the life of the flesh of the one who perpetrated those crimes. Primarily, they dealt with those crimes that defile the land. In Numbers 35, God says, I live in Israel, basically. It's a paraphrase, but I dwell in this land. I, my presence is found here. And then he starts to explain to us some stuff. In verse 33, blood defiles the land, and there is no expiation, or that word means atonement, there is no atonement that can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So here he reinstates his command to Noach in Genesis chapter <coughs> 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Prior to that, God forbid man to shed blood. Cain had a mark that did not allow anybody to take his life, even though he was a murderer. The life of the flesh, which is in the blood, cries out from the ground to be avenged. Those words are used to describe the death of innocence, from the death of righteous Abel, all the way to the death of the last martyr in the book of Revelation. The death sentence in ancient Israel for murder was swift and it was public. Further, the entire community joined in in that punishment. The witnesses were the first to throw the stone. That's why Yeshua had the adulteress, the, the lady who's brought to him in a, caught in adultery he who is without this sin cast the first stone. If you're the witness, you need to cast the first stone. So any witness who did that had to be firmly convinced of what he saw. 
it provided a deterrent for others in Israel against performing this particular crime. But the Lord was also merciful. He considered circumstances. Taking a life in war or taking a life in self-defense was not punishable. It's not a crime. Killing by accident was also excused. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 5. If a man is chopping down a tree and the axe head came loose and killed another person, that person could go to one of the three cities of refuge that were scattered in different regions in Israel, and he would be protected from the avenger of blood. Who was the avenger of blood? A relative who wanted to take vengeance for the death of his kinsman. But then there are some unintentional killings that were punished by death. Exodus chapter 21, verse 22 and 23. If men fight with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay whatever the judges decide. So the husband determines what kind of money should be paid. The judges determine whether or not that's reasonable, and whatever the judges decide, that, that person who struck her by accident is to pay that amount. However, if further injury, for example, if the child or the woman dies, you shall appoint, appoint as the judgment life for life. Even though it was unintentional, they didn't mean to hit the woman, their carelessness caused a death and their lives were forfeited. Little side note here, obviously God considers the child to be a life even when in the womb. Man has determined that God's law is inaccurate and allows for the murder of a child in the womb with no punishment. I see God's laws more merciful than man's, leastwise with regard to the child. Defiling the land by breaking the Shabbat also calls for the death of the one who breaks the Shabbat. Yet there is only one case in all of recorded history for Israel where that is, that death penalty is enacted. Numbers 15 verses 32 to 41. Only one case. Was that the only man in Israel to break Shabbat? No. But we still only have one death, one execution. He's picking up some sticks. Why him and nobody else? I have no idea. And it's covered by that innocent little statement I made last week and this week. God is holy, righteous, and good. And his judgments reflect holiness, righteousness, and goodness. And I accept them, even though I don't understand them. These are not the only capital offenses mentioned by God. Certain sexual behaviors were considered defiling, as well as any child who is disrespectful or strikes a parent. If we killed every child that was disrespectful to the parent, Israel, all of Israel, would die in a generation. It'd all be gone. All the 12 sons of Israel, Yaakov, they would have all been killed. That, this was not a penalty that was applied very often. God's judgments on these things were given to Israel and when a person was executed there was never 
an erroneous judgment. There was never a wrongful execution. No one was ever put to death like old George from Tombstone last week. Never happened. Why? Two little stones. They were called the Urim Vitumim, the lights and the perfections of God. The two stones that sat behind the breastplate of the high priest. Somehow, nobody really knows how. This has been lost to time. But somehow, those stones would vibrate or glow or they would do something. The high priest would ask God a question and God's will on the matter was given through the Urim Vitumim. It's there in the scriptures, and that's the way judgments, especially on capital cases, were accomplished. It was God who made that judgment, and God's judgment is holy, righteous, and good. There was never any mistakes. However, Jewish law after the Urim Vitumim is extremely careful on how a person is accused of capital crimes and how they are to be executed. In Deuteronomy 19.15, Torah does not allow a man to be accused or condemned by the mouth of a single witness. There has to be two or three that the matter might be established. Judges in Israel went even further in their desire to avoid any mistakes. For instance, not many know this, but if there was a unanimous decision by the Sanhedrin to convict and execute a person guilty, the sentence was thrown out. A unanimous decision could be construed as collusion on the parts of the judges. And that judgment was set aside. There had to be at least one dissenting vote in order for the individual to be executed. Western man has applied that when there was firing squads. There was always one rifle that wasn't loaded. That was not only useful, that person could then think, perhaps I did not, I was not one of the ones who killed him. But it was, again, uh, it was extrapolated from, from this portion of scripture. They desired to err on the side of mercy and compassion rather than judgment. For the most part, the judges who sat on the Sanhedrin took their responsibilities quite seriously. If they executed an innocent man, it was their faith that their eternal souls would be in danger. And so they were very careful about pronouncing a death sentence. Consequently, the number of executions in the history of Israel is really quite low, minuscule compared to other nations. Another aside, the evil Sanhedrin not enough. The profoundly evil Sanhedrin of the first century operated outside of the law of Israel itself. It was a completely defiled Sanhedrin. The Pharisee Nicodemus is livid and he castigates the priests and he defends Yeshua in John chapter 7. Does our law convict a man without first hearing from him to determine what he did? He's livid. What are you doing? You accuse him of breaking the law illegally, and you're breaking the law. There was another very famous, amongst my people, one of, one of the most famous of the first century rabbis, Gamliel. He's mentioned throughout rabbinic writings. He displays the wisdom of Solomon when he cautions other Pharisees against persecuting the disciples and the people who follow Yeshua. 
in Acts chapter 5. He says, if this is of man, it'll pass. This will come to nothing. But if it's of God, then you are in danger of fighting against God himself. That's the wisdom of Solomon. In contrast, the church seeking to follow the God of love was far less stringent in their pursuit of justice after they discarded God's law. Many were condemned on the testimony of a single witness. They believed the man was guilty until he was able to prove his innocence. That is impossible. The laws of logic, it is impossible to prove a negative. You can't prove something isn't. You can prove something is. They used torture to extract conf confessions in people who could stand no more pain, admitted to anything just to end it. Rather than a few millions at both the hands of the Roman Church and the Protestant denominations that followed, died. In truth, God's laws, perceived by man to be harsh, were in fact merciful. And man's laws, presented by man as being merciful, they fell far short of the word mercy. Let's look at some of the unintended consequences of man's attempt to improve on God. That redefines chutzpah, don't it? By the fourth century, God's word was divided, as I said. The church abandoned the detestable Jewish observances of Shabbat, seventh day, the Moedim, or the appointed times, which we call holy days, and many of the statues, ordinances, and judgments provided by Torah. Well, that left a vacuum, and it was filled by their own laws to move people towards holiness. These laws were designed to make people more holy. So were God's laws. I will avoid the capricious changes to God's law in ancient history, and I will focus on more modern iterations of this kind of behavior. In the 1950s, I mean, I was alive at that point, and, and I remember these decisions, or these arguments. In the 1950s, the execution of murderers was viewed as cruel and unusual punishment. That was the statement. Proponents of abolishing the death sentence reasoned that executing murderers makes the state guilty of murder. My poor brain has been under assault for 72 years. This kind of so sophistry borders on insanity. Executing a murderer is not the same as the murderer killing innocent people for personal gain. There's no equation here. That is not the same behavior. In showing mercy to murderers, we expose the rest of society to greater danger. I mean, that, that reasoning is crazy. It's non sequitur. There's no connection at all. Then we have, back in the 1800s during the old Wild West, people did love their drink. They would get drunk quite a bit. And they would go through town shooting up the town. Lots of people decided they didn't want to see that kind of behavior, and so the temperance movement was birth. The temperance movement saw alcohol as evil and was successful eventually in banning this drink in America. They believed 
this would remove the sin alcohol was responsible for. They actually saw alcohol as responsible for the bad behavior. Of course, God never banned alcohol. Now, I personally don't drink, not a drop. But that's a personal choice. I don't, I don't care if anybody else drinks. As long as you don't come, come, come into the congregation and start shooting it up. You know, I'm, I take a dim view of that. God held man responsible for his own sin. Regardless of the excuses that we provided for our own behavior. Whether it was alcohol or this woman that you gave me. If you'll remember from Genesis. We always have an excuse for why we behave poorly. And God typically doesn't care. The unintended consequences of prohibition was simply catastrophic for American society. Criminals involved in gambling, prostitution, and stealing were now focused on bootlegging because the profits from bootlegging dwarfed all those others combined. Profits were measure, measured literally in the billions of dollars and turned these individual gangs typically referred to as mustache peats. They were led by guys with mustaches. These individual gangs began to coalesce and all of a sudden we had a new phenomenon in America. It was called organized crime. These laws simply had no effect at all on the amount of people who drank. They just had to now start using code words, hand signals, to get into a new phenomenon in America called speakeasies, these places that appeared one way on the outside, but basically were bars. And it wasn't only the American public who broke the laws. The people who made the laws broke the laws, and they, they went into these speakeasies. I mean, this entire situation is completely insane. Al Capone literally owned Chicago. He owned the police department. He owned many in the FBI. That's where we get the untouchables from, Elliot Ness. There's one man in the FBI who was not corrupt didn't take money from, the, from Al Capone and his cronies. It is estimated that Al Capone pulled in over a billion dollars in three years during times of prohibition. Now that's, a billion dollars is a lot of money today. We're talking about a billion dollars in 1920 and 1930. It is an unimaginable sum. My grandfather supported a family of four on $7 a week. He pulled in over $3 billion in, in, in uh, a billion dollars in three years. It, inconceivable amount of money. Another example, many of the enlightened in the church and throughout American society led the fight to ban what came to be known as freak shows. P.T. Barnum made these famous back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Basically, these were shows that accumulated natural oddities. Sheep with two heads, there was animals, as well as humans. You know, we've all heard of General Tom Thumb, a two-foot-tall individual. We had huge, fat people in tremendously skinny people and tall people and short people and there was one woman with three legs which I always found odd she would buying shoes would have been really difficult you'd have to buy three pair to get two pair turned it into a math problem 
They were successful in convincing Americans that carnival shows exploited these poor creatures and robbed them of their dignity and self-worth. So we were going to fix it. By the late 1940s, these carnival shows all but disappeared. And Americans felt real good about themselves having put this degrading practice behind us. And we freed these poor souls. Now they could be what they wanted to be. Problem is, they were what they wanted to be. In the interviews with those very performers, to a man or a woman, every single one was livid. They were not good, they did not feel good at all about having their livelihood destroyed. They remained deformed, not like old Tom Thumb grew some after the freak shows were banned. He was still two feet tall. He couldn't find a job. It's not much call for a two foot tall person or a three-legged woman, or a 700-pound person, or a person so skinny they're a walking skeleton. Many of them couldn't find regular jobs. Their deformities, which allowed them to make a good living, were now deformities that could not be traded for money. Many of them died from exposure and abject poverty, and others were reduced to begging, and apparently our society didn't feel that begging was degrading. That would seem to be okay. Perhaps before you take on someone else's offense or pretend that they're offended, we should first consult with those people to find out what they want. They might not want our help. And as I wrote those words yesterday, or during this week, I was reminded of an old joke. It's kind of funny, I guess, on one hand, not so much on another. There's a little old lady standing on a street corner. She's got a cane, and, you know, she's waiting for the life to change, and Boy Scout young man comes by, and he's all energetic and filled with the desire to help. And so he grabs her by the arm, and he says, it'll be my honor to help you across the street, little old lady. And he starts taking her across the street. Well, the little old lady is screaming at him, stop, and she's whacking him with the cane, you know, quit. They get to the other side, and the poor kid, he was undeterred. He got her to the other side, and he's got a little spot of blood there from where she whacked him with the cane and lumps all over his head. He turns to her and says, it was my honor to help. She says, I don't want to be on this side. I'm going the other way. <laughs> Best to check with the people you want to help. We like to fix what's broke, and we use laws to do it. However, I've learned two very profound lessons over the course of my life. Be careful that your fix doesn't create greater challenges than those faced by the original problem. Doctors face this all the time. They can fix one thing, but it may cause four or five other things that'll end up killing the person. I'm also careful not to make permanent decisions, permanent rules, to address temporary problems. I try not to make general rules based on the behavior of a single or a couple of people. Those decisions never turn out good. Unfortunately, that's precisely what's happening today. Governments punish people who expose no one else to danger except for the possibility of themselves. We have helmet laws. They come to mind. They're designed to protect me from me. Now, maybe some of you think we ought to have helmet laws. 
so that people like me don't hurt people like me. Of course, if there are no helmet laws, maybe you won't have so many people like me. And quite frankly, if I have an accident, I hope I hit my head. According to my mother, it's the hardest part on me and the least likely to be damaged. Now let's leave comedy and go to some seriousness. It's the same thinking that fueled the thoughts on vaccines to protect me from being so stupid that I don't, can't see the value of the czars placed in charge of the vaccines messing with my RNA and that in my ignorance I don't trust them and they want to protect me. And more than that, they want to protect you from me because if I'm unvaccinated, then you're in danger. That whole notion is utterly preposterous, utterly. If the vaccine works, if I'm not vaccinated, I'm the only one who is in danger, not you. We have developed a broad band on violence in our society that makes it a crime in many jurisdictions to defend yourself when you are attacked. It's the truth. Denver is one of them. If you are assaulted and successfully defend yourself, you are now subject to prosecution in many different jurisdictions. And it's completely capricious. Depends on how the district attorney of that particular county feels. This has left the innocent with no immediate remedy to violence. They can't, they're divided. They're weak in the knees. I either get attacked, or if I defend myself, I could get prosecuted. We ban certain tools because some use them for evil. And the ban extends to the vast majority of people who do not abuse or misuse those tools. And as man's behavior apparently seems to, to degenerate, the quantity of laws that we pass increases dramatically. We have become a nation of criminals. There are so many laws, and you don't even know half of them. I went to a Starbucks. It was a particularly blusterous winter day. Snow was blowing. It was freezing cold. I'm in my truck. It's a diesel. I leave it running. I go into Starbucks. I come out with coffee, and there's a cop standing in front of my truck. Being ever the sarcastic jerk, I walked up to him and I said, uh, pretty sure I wasn't speeding. What's up? He says, you know your truck is running? You can't say that to a New York Jew and expect a straight answer. Come on. Yeah, they would take my union card if, if I didn't jump on that. So I said, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I bought it. It runs. This thing is... This thing is way too heavy to push. What's, what's going on here? What are we talking about? Because I'm completely obtuse. I am clueless. And he says to me, and I had no idea, he said to me, it's illegal to leave your truck running if you're not in it. Because somebody might steal it. Isn't that my problem? Does that hurt anybody else? And then I, I gave up and I said, you know what? I don't have time for this. Give me your ticket. I got to go. I, I got things to do. And he said, no, nah, that's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll just give you a warning this time. And I said, oh, my, that's so gracious of you. That really bothered me. 
And I had a, I still have a lot of friends in law, law enforcement, scores of them. And they used to come out to my ground in Elbert and shoot and practice and work out. And a couple, three days later, one of my really good friends was out there shooting. And, and I drove down to the range because I wanted to understand this from a different perspective. And I said, I'm, I'm getting kind of tired of you guys. And he said, what? What did I do? <laughs> and I told him the story of Starbucks. And he starts to laugh, which really didn't console me. <laughs> and he said, well, here's the deal. We have so many laws, traffic laws right now, that no matter who you are and what you're driving, if I pull you over, there's something that's illegal, either about your car or your tire touched the, the, the white line or the yellow line. There's always something I can find. We never, we don't enforce those laws. Those laws are there for probable cause. That in case I suspect some criminal activity, I can pull you over, and there's always something wrong that I can cite as probable cause. That also did not satisfy me at all. And I said, so uh, essentially you're telling me you just found a way around the probable cause law. See, as a society, we restricted you from just pulling us over for any old reason you choose. It's an invasion of my privacy called illegal search and seizure. And now you've found a way around it by producing so many laws that I have to be guilty. Well, he didn't get much shooting in that day, and we spent the rest of the day on philosophy and American jurisprudence. He lost the argument, by the way. I still got a ticket. Man's that kind of behavior can and it often does lead to government overreach and abuse of authority. In truth, liberty without law is tyranny. It is also true that with too many laws, there is no liberty, only tyranny. And for me, God's law represents the perfect balance between liberty and law. Perfect balance. When, pe when my people turned God's law into a burden, we took the law of God and made it an instrument to bind people up, and it became a burden. And Yeshua came to explain God and to lighten that burden. Come unto me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We need Yeshua now to bring such clarity in our day with the laws produced by our religious authorities and our political authorities. Now, I'm not Pentecostal, but can I get an amen? Because we are running amok. We have to remember laws only control the outward behavior of those who follow them. They have no influence on the lawless, by definition. God's word also focuses on outward behavior, but the ultimate goal of God is to change the nature of a person, to awaken that presence, his presence in them, that breath of God that dwells within us that we would become a law to ourselves, that the law of God from the inside would determine our behavior. God's holy wind will never lead you to abandon God's instructions. On the contrary, his spirit is focused on making those instructions so much a part of us 
that every action I take reflects every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what he wants. Then the light from those holy words that are engraved upon the tablets of my heart will shine forth. And others will see those good works and they will glorify their Father who is in heaven. Then I will need no external forces to compel me to comply. That will emanate as a radiant, lustrous, streaming flow of light. Father, in Yeshua's name, I thank you for your word engraved upon my heart. Your word leads me on Derech Hashem, the path that leads to you. It keeps that path straight that I might not turn to the left or the right. Your word is a light unto that path, revealing that path that leads to your throne. And in that light, I can see the blessed light of your presence, which beckons as a beacon to carry me home. Strengthen us this day, Lord God, that as we walk in the darkness, that we might be a light unto ourselves and the light of your presence would illuminate our surroundings and draw others to you in Yeshua's precious and holy name. Amen.